0: This is Everything Energy, produced by the International Energy Agency. Hello and welcome back to Everything Energy, a podcast created by the International Energy Agency that looks at current energy issues as well as the future of the global energy system. I'm Tanya Dyhan, and today my co-host Jad Malwad was at the IEA's headquarters for the launch of our flagship publication, The World Energy Outlook. Amid the deep disruption and uncertainty caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, this year's report focuses on the pivotal period of the next 10 years, exploring different pathways out of the crisis. Jad had the opportunity to chat with lead co-authors Tim Gould and Laura Kotze, who share with us the key messages of the report's analysis. Part of the World Energy Outlook is available on our website at iea.org.
1: Tim, welcome back to the show. It's a great pleasure. Thanks. 2020 will be remembered in history books as being the year of the pandemic. Will this pandemic provide a boost to clean energy transitions or will it slow it down? That's one of the main questions that the World Energy Outlook this year sets out to answer. But before we get into that, Tim, can you let us know what has been the impact so far of the pandemic on the energy system?
0: We have updated our assessment of what happened in 2020 and and, and published that in a new World Energy Outlook. Um, it's not radically different from what we set out earlier in the year. In fact, you know those early forecasts for 2020 um, turned out to be uh, you know very robust. Um, but what we what we see now is that. Um, Energy demand is probably going to be down around 5% this year. I mean, that's an astonishing shock for the system. I mean, we haven't seen anything like that in 70 years. Um, But the impacts vary quite a lot by fuel. So oil, 8% down, coal, seven. um, But then natural gas, more like three, electricity demand, two. And renewables, particularly renewables in the power sector. Um, have actually increased their contribution to global, um, you know, the global energy uh, demand uh, or meeting global energy demand this year. Um, so that diversity across the fuels has also given rise to some expectations, maybe that this is a turning point in uh, the global energy system. Um, but the key point that we wanted to drive home also with this work is that that really depends on what governments do now. You know, when as the, as the economy comes back, then are we rebuilding the old system or are we looking to, to create something new?
1: So this is where um, earlier this year, the WEO, the IEA produced a uh, sustainable recovery um, report to really look at how governments could actually make the best of this very uh, bad situation and use economic recovery plans to also address uh, emissions and climate change. Um but before we get into that, because this is something that you model in the WIO, that you also look at a top level scenario that doesn't see a quick recovery. and walk us through that and what the impact might be of that, especially as we're all now confronting um, a, a second wave in the epidemic. Uh, uh, and how might how that look like?
0: That's uh, that's exactly the key issue, the well, key unknown that we were trying to to, to examine. Um, how long will the pandemic? How, how long will the pandemic last? And what? Uh, how how damaging might its effects be on the global economy? Um, and then, in our stated policy scenario, um, we assume that the pandemic is gradually brought under control in the course of twenty twenty one, and that allows then for a relatively rapid recovery. Uh, in the economy. So the economy, global economy gets back to its pre-crisis size next year and energy demand in 2023. But what if those assumptions are too optimistic? And that's certainly in people's minds right now. Um, so we also looked at this delayed recovery scenario where the effects of the pandemic are that much more prolonged and the impacts on the economy, not just in the near term, but on the the long-term growth prospects of the economy uh, also take a a much more severe hit. Now, in that delayed recovery scenario, the global economy takes another two years to get back to its pre-crisis size. Um, And then you don't see energy demand getting back to uh, 2019 levels until the middle of the the decade. Um, And that would really represent then the slowest growth in global energy demand that we've seen uh, over a decade period since the 1930s.
1: Part of the analysis also looks, and you mentioned um, various uh, the differences between oil demand and demand for renewables and others. Let's focus a little bit on the demand for oil looking out 10 years. So the focus of the report looks, while it's a long-term analysis, it does really focus on the next 10 years uh, because it is also a decade of uh, necessary action. So. Walk us through a little bit where you see oil demand going, particularly at a time when there's a lot of uh, discussion about potentially peak oil demand. What does your analysis show you on that?
0: Oil was the fuel that was most affected by the pandemic in 2020. Um, essentially, you've erased almost a decade of growth in oil demand in, in a single year. So as you say, that's naturally created a lot of debate about where do we go from, from here and, and whether that might be in a sense, a turning point uh, in in the long rise of oil in the energy system. Um, on the counter side, you know, oil use has rebounded relatively rapidly after previous economic crises. Um, so we wanted to take a deep look at, you know, is this time different? And what we find is that as things stand. So with the policies and the behavioral changes that we can identify, an economic recovery will bring oil demand back to its pre-crisis level at some point over the next few years. The duration of the pandemic, the economic slump, uh, can affect how quickly that happens and at what level oil demand might plateau towards the end of this decade. Um, But if you want to change the shape of these demand outlooks, you really need to do something a little bit more profound to the structure of how we meet our demand for transport or how we consume plastics. you know Either way, it seems like we're entering that last decade of oil demand growth. Um, but if you want to turn that trajectory around and, and, and move towards a scenario where you see oil demand in, in, in rapid decline, um, then you need to have a stronger push for electrification, a stronger push for fuel efficiency. Um, and you know you need to change the way that we use or reuse plastics through through recycling for example okay so here you've outlined
1: uh, in a way the trajectory of oil demand in the sustainable development scenario we will be spending a bit more time in the second half of this episode with Laura Kotzi talking about the sustainable development scenario um but but in this sense here um um, the the demand for oil um, and the demand then for the other for other fuels, um, particularly here, one of the main findings is the the incredible surge for renewables. Um, give us a sense of how the, those are affecting the emissions trajectory, because one of the other kind of main messages that came out this morning is that even in a delayed recovery scenario, where you would think that oil demand is or energy demand is lower, that is not. A uh, sustainable um, uh, low-carbon uh, policy or approach that, that must be taken—it has a cost. In other words,
0: that's right. Um, the outlook for coal is that it never gets back to 2019 levels in any of the scenarios that we examine. Um, oil, as we've as we've said, you know, if nothing changes in the policy side, then you can expect a, a rebound, but the timing of that is is uncertain. Natural gas does relatively well, Um, markets are well supplied at the moment, prices look quite attractive for consumers, Uh, we see some quite strong potential in that scenario for gas growth in countries like China, India, others in Asia that are trying to boost industrial output and improve air quality. Um, But the big winners, whichever way we look at this, are, are the renewable sources of energy. They meet well over half of the growth in energy demand in the stated policy scenario, uh, we need to differentiate a little bit between the fortunes of renewables inside the power sector where they are making extremely rapid progress and and in some of the end- use sectors where that growth uh, is a little bit slower um but where they are strong they are extremely strong and and I think that's one of the main elements that comes through in this year, in this year's uh, in this year's outlook. Now, of course, all of that shifts down to different degrees if the recovery is delayed. And if you're looking looking at this through the prism of emissions, then you might say that, well, that seems like a good deal. Um, we would caution against that because in a sense, you're getting those emissions reductions for all the wrong reasons. Um, it's just a product of that slower economic outlook. Um, you're not seeing any acceleration in the sorts of structural changes that we think are necessary to, 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 to tackle the climate uh, problem. Um, so while demand for fossil fuels is down, investment in clean energy is also down. Um, and from a consumer perspective, whether it's a household or a, or a company, um, when times are tough, you, know, you might delay that decision to install a more efficient appliance or to switch to a a less carbon intensive fuel. And so that change, that turnover in the energy system actually slows down. Everything goes into slow motion in a way in this delayed recovery scenario. So it serves to illustrate that low growth is not a low emission strategy. You're going to need, you know, a slump can suppress emissions, but it's not a solution to climate change.
1: Thanks. Um, If if we go back just a little bit um, on the oil and gas uh, producers, you mentioned that um, oil had been particularly uh, hard hit. Oil demand had been particularly hard hit during the um, big this year. Um, Tell us what that the implications of that uh, is for oil and gas producers. You produced earlier this year in January, I believe, um, a report about the oil and gas industry in the clean energy transition. Um, today we're seeing sharp drops in the value
0: of these assets. What, is, what are the implications of this analysis? I think there's two ways of looking at this. Um, you can look at it from a, a country perspective. So countries that are very reliant on oil and gas revenue. And then you look at the industry perspective on the company side. And I listened uh, with great interest to your conversation earlier in this series with Ali Al-Safar and um, with whom we worked on, on the first aspect of this. So the country perspective um and what i think the experience of 2020 demonstrates is that it's it's more than ever uh, essential for major producers to to diversify and reform their economies to reduce reliance on those hydrocarbon revenues um but again from a company perspective i mean the shifts that we've seen in 2020 have, and the pressure that's coming from investors um to for the industry to justify its strategies and to explain its contributions to reducing emissions, they're also having a a significant impact. So it's affecting the types of resources that are developed. Um, In a lower price environment, all of these new resource ideas have to be low cost. Uh, But I think increasingly, um, companies know that they have to be low emissions as well. Um, We've done a lot of work on on methane abatement, and we think that's a critical part of that discussion. and when we think about diversification from a company perspective, um, you know, we need to bear in mind one of the lessons from this January report that you know, there are elements that we think are essential in clean energy transitions, um, whether that's offshore wind or whether it's technologies like carbon capture utilization and storage or low carbon hydrogen that are actually quite a good match for the, uh, the capabilities and expertise and engineering know-how uh, of these large oil and gas companies. So we think that there is there are areas of the transition where they can actually play a very important uh, play imp- very important part. Thank you very much, Tim, for this
1: um, uh, overview of uh, some of the findings. The report is clocks in at over 460 pages, so this was a, an overview of the main messages. Uh, thank you very much. Congratulations on producing uh, this uh, analysis, and um, I invite our. Um, podcast listener to join us for the second half of the interview uh, with uh, your uh, co-author Laura Cotzi. Thanks, Tim. Thanks a lot, Tim. Welcome back, Laura, to the podcast. Thank you, Jad. I think this is, I I thought it was the second time. In fact, it's the third time you're joining us. Third
2: time, indeed. Yes. Yes,
1: You are our most successful (laughs) guest on the show.
2: It's a productive year. It has
1: been a productive (laughs) year, certainly for our podcast, but exceptionally productive for you and your team um and uh for the for the weo uh and this morning we did re- you released uh, we released the world of energy outlook uh which really looks at the impact of the crisis as we've just heard from uh Tim Gould um but now as we drill further down i think one of the most remarkable findings is the one that you are finding about renewables and particularly solar so tell us a little bit about uh the impact of the crisis on renewables and the opportunities uh, uh, that that solar is having, particularly now?
2: So first of all, maybe we start from uh, uh, what we're seeing from the data emerging in 2020, where very clearly renewables are less affected than than other fuels uh, uh, by this crisis. In fact, we're seeing renewables generation continuing to grow, while generation from, from other fuels is really plummeting. And our assessment for this year is is a very significant trend break uh, on what we are expecting for for the outlook. Uh, Coal has been uh, uh, the the king of electricity supply for many, many years. However, uh, already in the next few years, we are expecting renewables as a whole to overtake coal. This is a major transformation for the electricity sector. And when we look uh, at the data for the next 20 years, the incremental generation that will come from solar is going to be larger than what coal has actually produced incrementally over the past 20 years. That's the key reason why uh, we decided to go out with this big title, solar is the king. Uh, We need to to say that solar is not the only low carbon fuel growing. Uh, Wind is growing very strongly as well onshore and offshore wind offshore wind we are very pleased to see the cost reduction that we had anticipated already last year in our special report actually materializing mostly in in, in Europe but really taking off all over all over the world uh, so really solar the king but a very strong contribution from all low carbon technologies including wind Hydro remaining very stable, uh, the, the the first uh, low carbon generation, and nuclear as well maintaining a very significant role.
1: So you mentioned the offshore wind report that, that uh, your team put out last year. In fact, the next special report you're gonna be working on, perhaps we've already started, is about uh, solar. So this is something that uh, we're gonna keep a very, very close eye on, uh, particularly um, um, with the cost declining. Um, what happens for solar to pick up even more? Because I think there's an interesting finding where solar has even more capacity to grow, uh, so to speak, yep. uh, in the SDS.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why we have revised again upwards our, uh, our solar projections this year is that even during the pandemic, a lot of governments uh, have continued to provide uh, support for, for solar, in fact, they even strengthened it, a uh, case in point is the European Union, but also India that has strengthened the policies. Um, when we look at uh, the at scenario that is compatible with the international climate goals, including the Paris Agreement, so our sustainable development scenario, we actually find that the role of solar will be even larger. Uh, to give a sense of magnitude, we would be expecting that by 2040, uh, generation from solar would be 13 times the generation today.
1: This is huge. And, and is this something that our power grids globally can sustain or can, can support? What what kind of investments w- would need to happen to be able to get there? Maybe another question also about the security of supplies. I mean, this is one of the topics that comes a lot when you talk about renewables. What do we make of that?
2: Clearly, electricity is so pervasive in our lives today through this digitalization that uh, ensuring that the lights are on at all time, has a value that has never been as high as today. So ensuring electricity supply security is critical. What's happening with the the large amount of new renewables capacity, and in particular variable renewable capacity that you're putting onto electricity systems, is that the electricity system itself needs to change, needs to operate in a different manner. One of the key things is that grids need to be much more. So because we need to make sure that wherever wind and solar we are Harnessing is then brought to the demand centers. And at the same time, we want the system to become much more smarter, much more digital. We are connecting a lot, to all sorts of digital devices. We want the grid to become smarter as well. So, uh, we will need to add eighty uh, percent more kilometers of grids that we have done over the past decade. So, this calls for a significant surge, and in investment, which is uh, a good thing. However, when we looked at the revenues of the companies that would need to make those investments, at the beginning of the year, they were going down. So we are uh, putting a bit of a warning sign here. Policymaker, be careful, because we may need to change the regulation to make sure that the investments are done in a timely manner so that our lights are always on.
1: Right, so this need for, you said 80%, right, of increase in, uh, yeah. in grids that we've seen in the last uh, decade. Decayed, yeah. yeah. Uh, at a time when when um, grid operators are are facing difficult times, you made you had a very interesting uh, um, uh, figure this morning um, that it would be in total sixteen million uh, kilometer of lines, and so this is uh, how many times the distance from 40, here to
2: the moon forty times the distance from here to the moon. So it's a lot, a lot of cables <laughs> and, and and grids that need to be to be laid in in the world.
1: So in a way, there's a, a, a and a, our executive director had put out a few weeks ago, reasons to be optimistic about the, the transition. I think here, the whole story of the WIO is how to make the best of a very difficult uh, situation uh, with the pandemic and with the government responses to the pandemic. But even in your analysis uh, this morning, um, you do show that we're still far away from where we need to be. And so, walk us a little bit through this picture. You've outlined the scenario where policies take us to a certain place, mm-hmm. but we're still far from where we need to be uh, to to uh, to achieve um, net zero. So, how do we get there?
2: So, what are the implications of our uh, steps scenario for for CO two emissions? Is that um, they are going to rebound? And reach 2019 levels and then remain rather stable. But this for emission for for emissions may seem okay. We are st- stabilizing emission is a good outcome. It's not. It's not because this means that temperature by the end of this century will increase three degrees. And this we know is a far cry away from what uh, in the international climate Agre- agreements, including the Paris Agreement, we are calling for. So um, it means that we are falling short in terms of uh, having what we need, which is having a steep decline in emissions starting from today and reach net zero sometimes in the second half of this century. So reason for optimism. Yes, there are some, because there is an increasing number of countries that are implementing sustainable recovery plans. This is the case for the European Union, for example. And at the same time, countries that are considering to implement net zero emission targets by 2050. So when we consider all of those, we do start seeing emissions declining a bit, but still is not enough for the steep decline that we need. We have looked also at the uh, President Xi recent pledge uh, of reaching net zero emissions for China by 2060. When we include that as well, we are roughly including, so the Chinese one, the European one, and all the net zero that are around the globe, we're roughly halfway through where we we would need to be. What would need to happen? What would need to happen is that for the rest of the world, we have still an opportunity because we are still in the middle of the pandemic, which is terrible on one hand. On the other hand, we know that governments will need to put forward new recovery plans. If we use those in the right way to boost clean energy investments, to to boost efficiency investments, then we have an opportunity to rise ambition in the rest of the world by 20% in 2030 and 60% by 2050, then we would be in line with the sustainable development scenario.
1: Excellent, and, and these uh, policies are in line, the ones that have been either announced or outlined so far, they're in line with the sustainable recovery scenario that the IEA that you've put out a few months ago, um, for which there's an economic case as well as a climate case and, and a job case, right? So absolutely Uh, walk walk us through that again it's a bit
2: of a yeah absolutely so this is work that we have done at the beginning of the year uh, with the international monetary fund to understand what kind of recovery packages could be put together hitting three goals at the same time so boosting economic growth increasing jobs and employment and having a more secure and sustainable energy sector and what we find is that if we were able to mobilize $1 trillion a year for the next three years, meaning 2021, 2022, 2023, in three macro areas. One is electricity and grids. Second is, broadly speaking, efficiency. And third, innovation. Then we would be able to boost economic growth very significantly, 3.5% by 2023, create 9 million jobs every year, and put emissions in a structural decline in line with the what the sustainable development scenario needs so it's something that is within reach
1: yes and this is where even the focus of this report which usually looks at the long term is also focusing on the next 10 years because this is a decade of action as uh, as you're outlining um and we have seen some uh, positive commitments in that uh, regard there's another uh, scenario or case that uh, is also part of the novelties of the report this year uh, which is the net zero by 2050. So you've extended the SDS analysis, which is an S, a, a net zero scenario, but you've you've looked at what would be needed to bend the curve even more steeply to 2050. So um, walk us through some of the main elements of that scenario, uh, if, if you would, and uh, before we get to how achievable in a way is it.
2: So that's precisely right, Jad. So what we have done is look to at a more ambitious scenario at the global level. So what does it mean to reach globally net zero emission by 2050? In terms of temperature, it would mean that we were we would be able to limit global temperature to uh, below 1.5 degrees. Um, So we looked in particular at what needs to happen in the next decade. Why is that? Is because if we have a chance to meet net zero by 2050, action needs to happen within this decade. For the energy sector alone, it would mean cutting emissions from today's level by 40%. So it's really a very, very daunting task. And we have analyzed uh, what would it take. And um, there are really myriads of actions that are needed by different parts of the society. So nobody can be excluded. So companies have a role to play. They need to scale up all their low carbon technologies, including the one that is less mature. For example, low carbon hydrogen would need to be scaled up 100 times compared to today. But we cannot think that actions of companies alone would be sufficient. As citizens, we need to be engaged as well. We need to be engaged in the choices we make when we buy things. So we need to make sure that we always buy the most efficient thing that is available. We need to make sure that we buy the best car available. In 50% of cases, it means that we would need to buy an electric car. So the number of electric cars sold would jump from today, 2.5 million to 50 million in 2030. Uh, For citizens, it would mean that behavior needs to change as well, so we find that actually gigatons could be cut by changing our behaviors. Uh, We have analyzed in details 10 actions. Uh, They include uh, lowering our thermostat uh, when we have air conditioners on by a few degrees. Uh, It means that, uh, uh, for example, if we need to take a a trip that is 10 kilometers, in those cases, we would forego to take a car, but rather walk or cycle. So it's really a pervasive thing in our daily lives. And finally, a big role for finance to step up their engagement in uh, clean energy investments in a very, very significant way. In clean uh, uh, electricity, for example, we will need to reach 1.6 trillion by 2030 to give a sense of scale that's twice as much what we have ever invested at the top for oil and gas upstream, which is usually the area for which is more, more easy to attract investment. So twice as much what you were ever able to, to do for oil and gas by, by 2030.
1: That's indeed quite a sobering analysis, not just in the level of investment that is needed, but also uh, I think some of the behavioral changes is interesting. Two gigatons is quite a lot, in fact, uh, as well as uh, affecting our daily lives. And I think here the message is, here's what it would take. And the responsibility is—you mentioned companies, you mentioned citizens, you mentioned uh, uh, finance or industry as well. The responsibility is also on government policy to get us there. And this is this is the message, certainly for that part of the analysis.
2: So absolutely, Jad. Because uh, when we look at the uh, number and scale of actions that are needed, and by the number of actors needed, it's very clear that governments need to be at the heart of it with sound policies that would accelerate this enormous task uh, in front of us.
1: So I just want to ask you one last question here before you kind of give us your overall conclusions. It's a a chart that you presented that is in uh, the analysis and that you presented this morning as well, which is something that the IEA has been really talking about for a while, which um, is not really always front and center in this debate. Uh, And it's about lock-in emissions. Um, and the chart you presented, if I can describe it here to our listeners, is essentially all of the emissions uh, from uh, the power sector, the industry sector, and other sectors up to now, from the beginning of this uh, century, of, of last century. And just looking at those existing assets today, how much they will keep emitting over their useful life. And here, the result of these added emissions take us to not an ideal place. So, what is the result of all these added emissions?
2: So it's exactly what you you described, Judd. So the the built-in environment we are living today will stay with us for for many many years. And 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 what we find is that those emissions uh, of uh, of the the, the the built-in environment. Uh, what we call uh, lock-in emissions would lead us to, by the end of the century, 1.65 degrees. Why is that? Because if you look at this emission trajectory, these uh, these assets uh, will continue to emit beyond 2050. And we said earlier that to limit uh, uh, temperature to 1.5, we would need to be at net zero by 2050. What is the key message? Why are we always trying to repeat this message is that there is we feel somehow a right attention on what are we building new, the new solar, the new EV, the new air conditioner, etc. And this is absolutely right. We need to have this focus. However, to be successful in climate policies, we also need to start looking at the other side of the corner, which is existing infrastructure. It's very clear that we, what we have now, the thousands of power plants, thousands of uh, cement, iron and steel factories, our cities. We need to look at those and start to intervene in a very direct manner on these assets. Otherwise, already with those emissions, we will be above the 1.5 degree target that is so much talked about.
1: That's, that's quite fascinating and it can be summed up, I think it was summed up as we have two jobs to do, focusing on building clean, but also looking at the existing assets and repurposing, recycling, uh, carbon uh, capture and storage comes into play here, uh, et cetera fascinating analysis. We could go on for hours, but I, I will spare you these hours of conversations Thank today. Thank you. Thank you
2: very much. Chad.
1: Uh, but I wanted maybe to ask you for a parting thoughts on this. And what is your one sentence or two sentence conclusions after uh, producing this 465 page report um, that you would like to leave our listeners with?
2: I think it's something that uh, we actually worked with the team after um, many hours and months uh, in uh, a very uh, weird condition to prepare this report with colleagues a bit all around the planet, uh, not seeing each other. And uh, uh, we sum up this uh, this uh, the main finding of of, of the O in there is really no shortcuts. So there is no shortcuts, which means uh, governments have a huge role to play to uh, write the right policies, and all of us have a role uh, in, uh, in 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 writing a better future. So uh, we hope with this book to help uh, governments uh, to be able to write better policies going forward.
1: Thank you very much. This was uh, Laura Cozzi, the IEA's chief energy modeler and the Uh, one of the two uh, co-lead authors of the WIO. And Laura, I can promise you that you will uh, just guaranteed yourself a fourth invitation to our podcast. Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Chad. It's a pleasure (laughs) to be with you.